You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. My wife and I had been married for several years living in the promised land of Manhattan, Kansas when we decided that we wanted to get a house. We'd been living that apartment life, and, and we were hoping that some point we could get a dog, because if we could keep a dog alive, our thought is, babies are next. But you got to get that house first. At least that was our situation. So there we were, um, walking into what's called your closing appointment, this meeting where you sign all the documents for the house, all of the stuff gets transferred over, and, and, and it was that moment walking into that closing meeting when I learned about a little thing called escrow. Now, those of you who don't know escrow, lean in, I'm about to save you a bunch of heartache. For those of you who understand the joke, you know what's coming. I, I had foolishly thought that when you go to one of these simple online mortgage calculators, you could just put in, this is how much the, the house costs, and, and this is how much interest is, and that equals your house payment. And so naturally, we decided to um, go to the very top of our budget to get the biggest house we could at that point, um, and then I walked into this appointment and found out that there's this thing called escrow where you have to, every month, in addition to uh, your principal and interest, you're going to pay for um, insurance and taxes and even a thing called PMI if you don't own 20% and blah, 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 which is why when we walked out of that appointment, between Brooke and I, one of us was crying and the other person was trying to support the full weight of the other. And I'll let you decide who was doing all the crying. <laughs> what? Here's the lesson I learned. You shouldn't buy a house until you know what it costs. <laughs> um, for those of you who just pay cash for your house, congratulations. For the rest of us mere mortals, don't go buy a house until you know what it actually costs. And I actually think that's a really good rule just in life. Like, don't buy something until you actually know what it costs. Um, for example, like a dog, you, you buy a dog and then there's all this other stuff that nobody tells you about when you have to buy a dog. Um, and they also uh, don't tell you that after you get one dog, the rest of the family says, we need another dog because they're lonely when we go. You just, no, no, you got to know what this thing's going to cost before you buy it. That, that's true for houses and dogs. It's also true for your schedule. There's, there's things that we commit to and then before too long we realize, Oh, that's what it takes to do this thing? And you, and you realize, I don't want to do that anymore. It costs way more than I thought. This principle is just good in life. Don't, don't commit to something. Don't buy something until you know what it costs. And, and, and this principle is especially true for Christians. And what Luke wants to do in, in chapter 14 is help us understand that you should not you should not commit to Christ until you know what it is that Christ and following him costs. And, and I think one of the challenges in our culture today is that you've got a bunch of people who go, oh yeah, I, man, I'll, Jesus, I'll buy it. But then they actually don't know the escrow. And I wonder if anybody in here 
might be thinking to themselves, yeah, man, I mean, I heard the sales pitch. I watched the late night TV preacher who said, you should commit to Christ, but you didn't know the price tag that accompanies that decision. And so what Luke's going to do is he's going to walk us through that in two movements. There's really two sections to our text. And in my hope for you, my prayer is that as you leave today, you would walk out the doors and you would know without a doubt, this is what it costs to be a Christian so that you're not going to call me up in a week. You're not going to call me up in a year and go, Pastor, what in the world? You, you sold me this thing, but that's not really what it costs. We want everyone in here crystal clear about the cost to following Christ. Well, with that in mind, let's jump into our first big idea Here it is, for those following Christ, you must be willing to humbly care for the hurting. That's the first cost Luke wants us to see. If you're going to follow Christ, you got to be willing to humbly care for the hurting. And we find this first section goes from verses 1 to 24. In fact, if you notice, this entire first section orbits around a dinner If you've got your Bibles open um, to Luke 14, you can look there in verse 7 where we see Jesus telling a parable um, to those who were invited to the dinner. Um, We also can see in verse 12, Jesus is talking to the man who had invited him to the dinner. Uh, In verse 15, Jesus is going to speak to a person who reclined at the table with Jesus. He was at the dinner too. This entire first section is all around dinner. And, and, and the point Luke wants us to get, so you have to humbly care for the hurting. And so what we see then is verse 1, Jesus is at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, and they're watching him closely. In fact, you can flip back to the end, just one page. Look at Luke 11, the end of Luke 11. You can see that, that the Pharisees and scribes, they didn't like Jesus, and they're always trying to trap Jesus. So, so in our text, 14.1, where they're watching him carefully, we realize these guys are trying to trick Jesus. And they've had this fancy schmancy dinner party. It's on the Sabbath. And as Jesus is headed to that dinner, as maybe he gets right outside the door, there just happens to be a guy with dropsy just sitting right there. How convenient. Of course, dropsy is a swelling of the legs, swelling of the ankles, just incredibly painful and in an awful condition and here's this guy on sabbath as jesus gets ready for this schmancy, fancy schmancy dinner party i think jesus knows it's a trap and jesus takes the bait verse three he asks the religious leaders who are watching him like a hawk is it lawful to heal this man on the sabbath simple enough question yes or no Now, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they can't say, yes, it's lawful, because that would be to undercut their entire view. So they can't say yes, and yet they can't say no, because it would reveal their heartlessness to those who are hurting. Everybody would realize those religious leaders don't care about the man with dropsy, which is why they say nothing. And Jesus is brilliant. Verse 5, he heals the man. And then verse 6, he says, look, if y'all had a kid who fell in a well on the Sabbath, you'd get him out. If y'all had a farm animal who fell in the well on a Sabbath, you'd get the farm animal out because you actually care for your stuff. The problem was the Pharisees and religious leaders were inconsistent. 
They would violate their Sabbath principles when it served them, but if it didn't serve them, they actually didn't care for the hurting. The warning then for Luke's intended audience, the same for us, to be consistent in how we live, to care as much for the hurting in our lives as we do for those people who are close to us and in our lives. See, if, if there's people that God has put in your life, life who's hurting and you don't really care for them, then it shows that you have the same heart condition that these religious leaders had. They, they wanted to appear religious. Who should we invite to this wonderful dinner party? Invite Jesus. He's like a real, I mean, he's on the rise. He's, he's an under 30 and, or under 40 and happening preacher in our area. So we really want to get him. Let's have him around because it'll make us look good. But at the end of the day, they didn't really want to listen and obey what Jesus is teaching. Pillar Commentary puts this better than I could uh, Listen to this quote. Verse 6 reminds Luke's readers that there are people like the Pharisees who call on Jesus, sit in Jesus' presence, and listen to Jesus' teaching, yet remain silent in the face of Jesus' concrete call to discipleship to help a fellow human being in need. Ouch. Well, what follows this confrontation then is a biting parable in verse 7 to 11 that addresses the religious leader's pride. Jesus tells this story about this great wedding feast, and, and, and Jesus says, when you show up, don't take the honorable seat, sit in a less honorable place. For it is terribly embarrassing to be asked to move down in honor in front of all the guests. And it's an honoring to be asked to move up. The principle, verse 11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. I know we're still in the middle of point one, but the application I just would love for you to write down is humble yourself. Now, that's what we see here. We want to we be people who are willing to humble ourselves. Oh, sure. It feels good to sit at the head of the table when you walk in thinking you're some big shot. Well, I'm going to sit down right here. But it's going to be embarrassing when they move you to the kitty table. Verse 12 then, Jesus makes the same kind of point. But now he's talking to the host of the dinner, the one who invited him. And Jesus says, hey, you'd be blessed when you throw a party not to just invite a bunch of other people who are going to invite you to their party too. This idea of, well, I'll invite, I'll invite Jeff. He throws the best parties, and I want to be sure to be on his New Year's Eve party list. So I'm going to invite Jeff to my party because then, you know. Jesus says, don't do that. No, you'd be blessed, verse 13, if you would invite those who are crippled, excuse me, poor, crippled, Lame and blind. Those are the people that you ought to be inviting to your party. The kind of people who are never going to have a party and invite you. People that you just care for. Not for what you're going to get, but just care and love people. Those are the people that you ought to invite. You'd be blessed if you dropped them. If you pulled them into your party. Again, Jesus 
Jesus is trying to show the folks at the dinner party that they have everything upside down. That the kingdom of God is not for the proud. The kingdom of God is for the people who have dropsy. And, and all this confrontation that's happening at this dinner party would be so awkward. Like, I don't know if when you have a dinner party, somebody decides to talk about politics or critical race theory or masks or facts. I don't know what it is in your little group of friends that all of a sudden everything goes quiet. Talking about who we're going to vote in the upcoming presidential election and somebody's on the side going, we don't talk about that. <laughs> Look at the weather outside. Well, it's, I think it's wicked awkward at this moment. And so there's some guy there who's like, okay, I got to say something. What do I say? What do I say? And so out of nowhere, verse 15, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. <laughs> and it's true. It's true. Someday we're going to be in the kingdom of God and God willing, we're all there. And if we're there, what a blessing. It, it will be. I hope we're all there. So it's true, and yet, yet implied in this guy's little blurred-out moment is the idea that, that everybody at the fancy-schmancy party is going to be there too. And so Jesus, he's not afraid of a cringy moment. He just, he just pushes into the awkwardness as he wants to explain who is actually going to be at that future feast. Spoiler alert, the religious leaders aren't going to be there. Not unless they humble themselves. So Jesus tells a story, verse 16, about a man hosting a banquet. I mean, hello, Captain Obvious. Here is Jesus going after the jugular. He, he, in this story, this master is going to throw a party, and he already sent out the save the dates. And people said, I've RSVP'd, I'm coming, me plus one. We're going to have, I'm bringing my whole fam. It's going to be a great time. We're going to go to the party. And, and so the master, you know, he says, hey, it's getting real close to when this party's happening. And, and hey, servant, hey, bond servant, I want you to go out. And I just want you to double check that everybody intends to be at my party. So his servant goes out and he, and he runs into three people. And, and the first guy goes, oh, man, yeah, I, you know, I put it on my calendar, but I bought some land. So, sorry, man. Man, thank you for the invite. I'll be there next time. I can't make it this time. The second guy says, man, I just bought some new farm equipment. I've got these, just these wicked awesome 10 oxen, man. They've got, they've got front wheel assist on them, and they're just fantastic, and so i got to go work on them. And then the third guy, oh, I'd totally be at your party, man, but I just got married, and so, you know, the wife, the old ball and chain and everything, I can't come. And, and so the servant, you know, he, he goes back and he talks to his master. In verse 21, the master's angry. And the master says, look, I'm having a party. I'm having a party. And I want it to be full. So, you know what? Since those people aren't going to come, you you go out and invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. I want them to be here. And that's what, the, that's what his bondservant does. In verse 22, the bondservant comes out and goes, okay, I invited them all, and they're coming, but there's still more room. So the master says, go out to the highways and the hedges. Just go out. Hey, y'all, you want to come to a party? Come on in. Let's go. The point, verse 24, none 
of the original guest list is ultimately going to be at the banquet. Which is to say, the religious leaders and Israel, though they had been invited, they have refused the invitation. Who then is going to be there? Well, it's the highways and the hedges, people. It's the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. It's Gentiles, those who are hurting. Do you see what Jesus has said in this section then? We get to the end of our first section. Here's the application. If you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write this down. You need church to understand who you are. You need to understand who you are. This is, we're talking about identity. Realize that, that, that if, you have, if, if you know that the king has invited you to the banquet, if, if when you walked in the doors today, you already know there is a king, his name is God the Father, he has invited me to his banquet, then you should know who you are. You are not the fancy schmancy religious leaders. You are poor, crippled, lame, and blind. You and I are the guy with dropsy. Ain't nothing fancy about us. <laughs> Not just ain't nothing fancy. I mean, frankly, we just have no business going to the king's ball. Why would king invite us? We got to understand who we are. Friends, we're highways and hedges people. God went to Israel first. And then he came to the Gentiles. And we're not getting to this king's party because we deserve to be there. We're, we're not showing up and going, you know, I was really busy. I had so many things to do for the eternity, and I decided to be at your party. You're welcome. No, we've got to understand who we are. And when you understand who you are, that, that's, that's a dose of humility. You go... Man, I'm not entitled to be at this, at this feast, but I'm delighted I got an invite. And, and now that I've got an invite, and now that I understand what, what this master is, who's whole, I'm going to go invite all my friends who are poor, crippled, lame, and blind. I'm going to go out to the highways and hedges. Man, I'm just so honored I would get an invite. I can tell everybody. And, and if they say, well, I'm poor, crippled, lame, and blind, me too. <laughs> and there's room. Understand who you are. Leads us to this beautiful gospel connection. Second application here. Understand who Christ became. Understand who Christ became. I'd love for you to write that down. Because, because what you've got to understand is Christ really was the perfect part of the Trinity. The, the Son, he actually added humanity to his divinity, which, kids, that's a real fancy way of saying God put on personhood. Jesus became a man. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. He, was the, he is the God-man. Jesus, he left perfect glory, wanted for nothing. He left that, and he became poor, crippled, lame, and blind, so to speak. Jesus is the one who truly deserved the most honorable seat at the feast. And he came and he took the lowest seat. 
He took the lowest of the low seat so you and I could move up. Jesus became human so we might be welcomed to eat with the king. You've got to understand who you are. You've got to understand who Christ became. And if you get both of those truths, then it takes us to Luke's point in this section, which is humbly care for the hurting. See, if you don't humbly care for the hurting, then I'm not sure you understand who you are and what Christ became. But if you get those, then it motivates you to go, I want to care for the hurting. I want to care. This is what the religious... It's what Jesus wanted for the religious leaders. And this brings us back to where we started. Jesus wanted those religious leaders to care about the guy with dropsy. So that when Jesus said, what do you think? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That the religious leader would say, yes. Yes. Help this guy. Heal him. Help the hurting if you can. So the application here for us. To humbly care for the hurting. But maybe you're sitting there going, okay, but pastor, what does that even look like? Pastor, what does that even look like? Well, I don't know your particulars. But, but if you're here and, and, and you run through the sort of Rolodex in your mind of all your friends and family and neighbors, if, if you're thinking through your contact list and you would say, there is no person in my entire network of relationships who is hurting, well, then you may need to get some friends. Because frankly, I think most people are hurting. When we put on a nice smile, we might brush our teeth, but frankly, we're just hurting so bad. And, and you need to get under the surface with a few of your friends. My guess is for most of us, it takes very little time for you to think in your mind, who do I know who's hurting? And you've already got a half a dozen people that you go, yeah, I know they're hurting. They, they're going through that thing with their spouse. They have that thing with their kid. They just buried somebody. They're going through that awful diagnosis, and it's scary, and they don't know if they're going to make it, and, 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 and on and on it goes. The Lord has put us in the lives of people who are hurting, and what, what, I'm, what I'm asking from you is to think of one person, one person that you would say, God, I, I want to go serve them, not because of what they're going to do in return, but I'm going to serve them because you came and served me. And maybe you, need a, maybe you need to give them a meal. Maybe you need to um, just drop some cash off in their mailbox because you know they're going through a hard time. Maybe you need to take them some groceries. Maybe you just need to look them in the eye in the foyer and say, I know you're in a tough spot, and I want you to know you're not alone. And it hurts, and it's hard, but I'm with you, and I'm praying for you this week. And if you need something, man, I would love to be able to care for you. I don't know exactly what you need to do, but the Lord has put you in relationship with people who are hurting. And I'm saying, can we be the kind of church that actually leaned into people who are hurting? I mean, wouldn't it be brilliant if, if the reputation of Mill Creek was the kind of church where people who have been rejected or ignored or, or abused or, or kicked to the curb or, or whatever else, that, that, that Mill Creek would be the kind of church where they said, oh, you should come here because these people, they're serious about Jesus and they're serious about helping one another. 
And it's not that they've got everything figured out, but man, they love Jesus and they want to pour their lives into other people. You should check out that church. It would require a shift from from showing up on a Sunday and thinking that this service or this church is all about meeting my needs. And, and, And you'd have to shift from thinking, How am I going to get my needs met to to being a person who would say, man, how can I give and pour myself out for others? I mean, every now and then there'll there'll be this criticism. A person will say, man, I really like that church. I just, just, I don't like the music. I didn't like the sermon. Good news, we weren't singing to you. Good news, uh, good news, it doesn't matter if you like the sermons or were they faithful to the text. And, and if we could shift then from thinking, oh, church, it, it better be about patting me on the back and serving me and be more about, hey, how can, I, how can I be a committed giver? Why, then we could be this kind of a church. And, and I know there's some of you in here who you're already doing this. Some of you are, are, are already deeply involved in our ministry to Afghan refugees and um, Jamie Gibson helps lead this, and, and you're on this team who is caring for these people who, who are given an apartment without any furniture or whatever, and, and they don't know the language. They're just doing their best to try to get their feet under, under them, and they're just so glad that they're out of a war zone, but they're in the middle of a foreign country. They don't know the language, and they need somebody to care for them, and, and you're, you're doing that, and I'm so glad. Or some of you, you're our volunteer Biblical counselors, you went through training and you pour hours into people, not because of what they give you, but you love Jesus and you want to really help the hurting. And so you commit yourself hours and hours a week and you're helping people grow more like Jesus and helping them in, in these ways that, that their Bible is out of alignment with the, with the scriptures. And that's, that's just beautiful. Some of you are on Mr. Ricky's caring team so that when we have a congregant who goes to the hospital or, or has a, a, a parent die or goes through a very difficult time, we're able to send an email and say, hey, would somebody take a meal? Would somebody be willing to stop by and do a visit? And, and, and some of you are giving yourself in those ways. And, and I know we've got some of you who've committed to going to church plant in Gardner. Bless the Lord, you get that it's not about what I can get from the church, but what I can give. And so I just want to be sure to say, I know some of you already are there, and, and may the Lord multiply your number. If, if you're here and you're thinking church was just about you and helping you get what you want, and well, now you know the price tag, hmm? And I know I need to move on to our second and final point, and it's going to be short, but, but I, I just have to say at this point, to, to those of you who walked in who don't know Jesus, when you walked through the doors, you didn't know that God the Father has sent you a personalized invitation that said, hey, in eternity future, I'd like for you to come to my party. If that's you, you didn't know God wants you to be in heaven with him forever. Well, I just can't get to point two before I say that out loud to you. You need to know you're invited. (laughs) And he's 
in God's total control, what we call his sovereignty, he has placed you here right now for you to hear this. God wants you in heaven with him, but what it's going to require from you is to bow the knee and humbly accept the invitation. And I realize you may be thinking, well, I don't know this God. I, I don't know who this host is. I, I don't know God the Father who's invited me. And I've heard some bad things about him. Let me assure you, he is wonderful. Come back next week for Luke 15, where you're going to get to see a part of his heart that you, it's going to blow your mind. He is wonderful, and he is kind, and he is loving, and he has personally invited you. Here's your invitation. Join him in eternity. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I want to take that invitation, Pastor, because some people in our culture say he's really judgmental and he's really angry. Some people go to hell. How am I supposed to make sense of all that? Oh, I agree. That's what the culture says. But didn't you hear the story? The only people who don't make it to the party are those who don't want to go. And that's the facts. The only reason you don't make it to that eternal banquet with him is because you decided, nah, I'm busy. I've heard it said that God is more willing to save sinners than sinners are to be saved. There's more willingness in God's heart to be saved than sinners are willing to take him up on it. So are you willing? Are you willing? What I'm trying to get you to do is go, okay, I hear the invitation, but you told me don't commit to something until you know the cost. Well, that's the second point that we need to get to, but I hope you'll accept the invitation, you'll count the cost, and you'll be in. If you've never decided to follow Jesus, make today the day. Move with me then to point number two, because here is explicitly the second part of this chapter, as Luke tells us. If you're wanting to follow Christ, you must be willing to prioritize Christ over everything. Verse 25, there's this great crowd accompanying Jesus. And if you, if you have your Bible open, you'll notice that, that Jesus explains there's three types of people who cannot be his disciple. Look at verse 26. It's the first person who can't be his disciple. If you, if you don't hate your family, you're out. Good grief. Yeah, I told you, we need to know what this price tag is before we commit to it. Verse 27, those who don't bear their own cross can't be Jesus' disciple. See that? And then look down at verse 33. Anyone who does not renounce all that he has can't be my disciples. And then Jesus puts two illustrations in there. The first one is about a guy who's going to build a tower but didn't spend the few minutes it takes to cost estimate the tower. He only got it halfway done and everybody's teasing him, mocking him. You're an idiot. You tried to build a tower. You didn't do a cost analysis and now you're out of money. Point being, you should do a cost analysis before you build something. Don't commit to something until you know what it costs. That's the principle. And there's a property just to... A couple miles away from here, I used to run by, ride my bicycle by, and, and, and they didn't finish the house. And then they tried to sell it. I hope somebody from overseas doesn't buy that thing because it ain't finished. 
That's the first illustration. The second one is, hey, if you're going to be a king who's going to war, it'd be well worth a couple minutes to think for a moment to see if he's got 20,000 men and I only have 10,000 men, I'm in for a tough war. So deliberate. Take a moment. Evaluate what something costs before you commit to it. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. Don't commit to Jesus until you know what it costs. And, and, and what I'm trying to get you to understand is following Christ costs way more than any mortgage payment you've spent. Actually, Jeremy, I live in Johnson County. You have no idea the taxes here. I promise you following Christ is way more. It's going to cost you everything. It costs you everything. That's the price tag, which means that it's possible some of you right now who walked in here and didn't know you got invited, you're now hearing this thing about Jesus and you're feeling like I was at closing day when, oh my goodness, that's the monthly payment? I, don't, I, I guess we're going to have to foreclose right now. Some of you are realizing that the cost of following Jesus is so steep, it's everything. And that's why you need to evaluate, are you in or not? It will cost us everything. In fact, our love for Jesus should be so great that everything else is a far second in comparison. Pillar commentary again. When the good rivals the best, then the good must be hated. Okay, but maybe you're sitting here thinking to yourself, this is what it takes to be a Christian. I have to surrender everything. But I know all these people who call themselves Christian and they don't surrender anything. What about them? Honey, we picked the wrong church to visit this morning. These people are crazy. They, want, they think every... I mean, I guess that is what the text says. But I'd like... I want to be at one of those other places. What would Jesus say to those other kind of Christians who don't surrender anything? I'll tell you what he says. It's right there in verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 35. It is of no use, either for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. So what of all those people who call themselves Christians and are not paying this price? Jesus is saying they're useless. They're useless. Commentator J.R. Edwards puts it better. Here's his quote. Believers for whom Jesus is more important than family and friends, even their own lives. Believers who take up their crosses as living martyrs and who forsake the claims of possessions are savory salt who bring joy to God and make palpable differences in the world. But Christians who are not salty aren't Christian at all more useless than those who never claimed to follow Jesus in the first place. Church, are you hearing what Jesus is teaching? You've got to be willing to prioritize Jesus over everything. The, the price tag is everything. Here then is the application. There's only one for this second point. I'd love for you to write it down. Here it is. Don't be useless. Don't be useless. If you're here and you are calling yourself a Christian, then you must be salty. You must not be unsalty 
salt. Of course, in those times, salt was so valuable so long as it hadn't been compromised. I, I learned in preparation for this sermon, salt was actually used as payment at times, and that evidently is where we get our word salary. It's based on this idea. But if you've got salt that has been compromised and it no longer has any of those properties, then it is the equivalent of some valueless currency. I guess it had value sometime, but it doesn't anymore. Jesus saying, be useful. And, and the way to be useful is by loving Jesus more than you love your spouse, more than you love your kids, which in today's cultural moment, I realize is a big sacrifice. If you're a parent in here and, and you're realizing that you're going to have to either stand with the clear teaching of the Bible against your child who's making a different decision or else you're going to have to compromise with what the Bible says just to make your kid happy so that they'll come visit. Parents in this church are having to make that decision, and it is painful. So I'm not minimizing it, but it is a reality. Which will you love more? Be useful by bearing your cross and following Jesus. I don't know what Christ has called you to bear, but bear your cross you must. Be useful. By surrendering everything to Christ. Church, our lives aren't trying, our lives are not to be an effort to have our sin cake and eat it while we follow Jesus. We are not aiming to carry a cross while enjoying on the side sinful comforts. That's not how Christians, according to Luke 14, are to live. The sermon in a sentence. Count the cost, then commit to Christ. That's what I've been arguing for all morning. Count the cost, then commit to Christ. And, and, and I'm sorry if you committed to Christ before you knew what the price tag was, but now we know from Luke 14. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.